Yeah. Okay. All right. Welcome everybody. I see a few people have joined. We're gonna uh, wait a few minutes just uh, to give everybody else an opportunity to join. handful of people that have joined. We're going to start in about 30 or 45 seconds. We'll, we'll get the ball rolling. But again, I uh, just want to thank you uh, for coming on time. Okay, uh, before we get started, I want to begin uh, with some basic uh, housekeeping. Uh, this is a, a Zoom webinar, uh, in case this is the first one you've been to, which I doubt, uh, given the situation we are all uh, surviving in. Uh, you'll, you'll notice that um, it's a little different than a typical Zoom meeting. Uh, you'll see a few faces on your screen right now. You'll see myself, my colleague, Mark Anderson, and uh, my friend, uh, Alex Blotkin. Uh, we are the three speakers for today. Uh, this meeting is being recorded. This webinar is being recorded and it'll be available uh, afterwards in our resource library. Uh, it is also available on YouTube, on our YouTube page and uh, on our LinkedIn page and our Facebook uh, page. So if an emergency comes up or a patient uh, needs your attention in the middle of this, feel free uh, to step out. You won't be missing much because we'll record it if, if necessary for you. All right, looks like we're about ready to get started. We're broadcasting live on Facebook too. Okay, so thank you again for uh, everybody who has arrived so far and for the people that are continuing to come. Um, my name is Michael Fishweiker with EMR Consultants. And uh, again, it's uh, my pleasure to spend uh, some time with you this afternoon to talk a little bit about uh, healthcare in the year 2021, uh, where it's headed from here, uh, some of the buzzwords that you might uh, have heard that you might be a little frightful of, uh, but no doubt you will uh, need to really address and have a plan for. Um, sorry, one more second. Bear with me, I'm so sorry. We're just trying to get that live stream started. There we go. So sorry. Okay, there we go. 
All right, sorry. Uh, my name is Michael Fishweiker. Let's get started. Uh, as we go through this uh, presentation, if anybody has any questions, uh, please feel free to All put right, them. Sorry, uh, my name is Michael Fishweiker. Let's please feel free to put them in the questions and answers window uh, that you'll notice uh, is in your Zoom control panel, and uh, we will address them as. Uh, we take a few Q&A breaks. Great, we talked about that and everybody knows why we're here. I wanna start off by just gauging a little bit of information from the audience. If you don't mind, let's go ahead and just take a quick poll. Go ahead, everybody can feel free to click. Okay, anyone else? All right. We didn't get a whole lot of attendees uh, participating there. Uh, I don't know if it's because uh, somebody needs an icebreaker or if uh, people are just shy or uh, keeping their cards to their vest. Uh, <laughs> But it seems like uh, from what we, we just learned, it looks like uh, for the first question, uh, the person who answered it said that they will never be paperless. Uh, what does paperless mean to you? Uh, and it, that I'm assuming it's the same person who said uh, scanning uh, old paper charts to PDF files. And uh, the third question is, what daily typical obstacles do you think your office staff would face when attempting to go paperless? And uh, faxes, laboratory results, and telephone messages seem to uh, be the winners there. And uh, the trivia question, which Mark Anderson will explain later what the right answer is, uh, was what percentage of US-based uh, private practices are fully paperless today in 2021? And it looks like uh, somebody was brave enough to guess 25 to 50%. So without further ado, let's get started. We're gonna uh, take a look at healthcare 2021 moving forward. Uh, our topics for today to discuss uh, range from the concept of cloud computing. Uh, we're not gonna be very technical on this call. The idea is to be uh, you know, introduct, uh, to, to speak at an introductory level so that everybody understands what they need to understand when it comes to things like cloud computing or SaaS software. Um, I think that it's important to mention that because even in preparation for this call, uh, the experts involved had a very deep uh, debate as to what constitutes 
uh, a cloud-based EHR versus what uh, constitutes a client-server-based EHR. Um, some systems uh, out there uh, are working truly cloud-based where they're fully browser-based. Other systems say they're cloud-based and they may require you to use something like terminal services or remote desktop to connect. There's also some systems that are called uh, thin clients where they install a little software, uh, which is like a little of a front end, but requires the data uh, online in order for it to operate properly. All right. Uh, number two, we're gonna talk about interoperability, which is growing more and more uh, by the year. I think uh, the biggest growth in this term has occurred in the last 12 to 18 months. And I'll explain that a little later. We're also gonna talk about data migration or Alex uh, Blockin is gonna uh, talk a little bit about data migration. Uh, and uh, we're gonna talk about uh, the importance of keeping patient-driven data uh, in clinical form, in discrete form. And also finally, we're gonna leave off of, uh, with the telehealth uh, topic and, and talk about where telemedicine is, where it's headed, uh, and uh, finally, also the, the keyword uh, disruptors. Uh, again, uh, I want to introduce uh, the two other speakers I have with me today. Uh, one of them is Mark Anderson. Uh, Mark has been a very uh, well-respected and, and very well-known uh, authority in the healthcare IT industry for well over 40 years, I believe, right? 48 years, yep. 48 years, and I've known him for at least uh, 20 of them. Um, I think when I first met you, your title was uh, Futurist. Yeah, Healthcare IT Futurist, that's what they called me. I always and talked now, about the future. And now we are in that future. And, you know, you know this, I, when I heard that and when I met you, this was like in 2002, well before the, the time when hospitals were buying up practices and uh, that whole move happened, and I'll never forget. You predicted it down to a T in in your uh, you know in, in your speech uh, mm -hmm. first time I heard you in Las Vegas at the uh, MediNotes conference. But in any event, uh, Mark, uh, do you want to uh, speak or, or jump in at this point? Yeah, I'll give a brief overview. So I'm in the field 48 years. Best way to look at me is I'm an operations guy who is also involved in IT. So I was the corporate CIO for five hospital chains. I've consulted with a number of other hospitals, and also I have uh, consulted with a number of medical societies and physician practices. So overall, I have spent $9.5 billion on healthcare technology as a buyer. So I'm the person who buys the technology, evaluates it, puts it in, installs it, and runs it. But in the last couple of years, I've basically been working heavily with building more community networks, uh, IPAs, ACOs, and a new term called clinical integrated network which is basically bringing a whole bunch of independent doctors together where they manage and they own the actual network itself versus allowing the hospital to network for them. I've also done a lot of work though on mergers and acquisitions, bringing doctors together. And over my career, I think of the hospitals I work with, we've, we've purchased over 8,000 doctors uh, and been rolled into the hospital's practices, mostly smaller physician practices. So I've been involved in all the operations side, the technology side, the financing side, everything in dealing with healthcare, on the provider market. We also work with them with the healthcare plans on finding ways of reducing costs 
improving outcomes and moving towards value-based re reimbursement, which we'll talk about later on today. That's my quick overview. Great, thank you for that. Alex, do you wanna briefly introduce yourself? Cause I didn't really uh, get into detail about your background. Yes, uh, my name is Alex Blotkin. I'm with a company called PS Medical Systems. We specialize in developing, we, we have several lines of business. One of them is developing management systems, which are web-based and mobile-based for a, a medical staffing industry. And we also specialize in uh, helping uh, medical practices converting their medical records when they're moving from a, uh, when they're converting to a new EHR, uh, moving to a new EHR system. We help them to uh, take the data of the old system and bring, in, bring this into a new system. And uh, I'm gonna talk today a little bit about some specifics related to a process of converting medical records. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great. Okay, uh, let's uh, keep going then. Uh, we're going to talk about cloud computing and where cloud computing is today. Uh, what is cloud computing? What is it all about? Where did it come from? I want to share this brief story that I heard, which was really fascinating. I was reading uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, biography and it's probably an undisputed point at this point that AWS, Amazon's web services, is probably the, the most widely used cloud backbone in the US today, no matter what industry you're in, healthcare, government, you know, private sectors, whatever. It's amazing to find, to, to read in this book that that business, the AWS business, didn't even start out as a business, quite frankly. Jeff Bezos is such a, uh, a careful spender that he mentioned in passing to one of his lead developers, we have so many extra computers that we're not fully utilizing the, the full processing power of. Can we pool them in such a way where maybe we can then loan them over to our engineers or, or you know, use them in that way? And that was the birth, believe it or not, of the AWS platform, which really is fascinating when you think about it because when you're in the technology business, you really understand that everything is all about those cloud platforms. I mean, it's, it's either Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Azure. One of those three key, you know, mega platforms are where you want to make sure your data is stored. And I say this because, you know, there's been so many uh, situations over the years that I've seen private practices go through. Uh, whether they be natural disasters, whether they be just uh, unexpected um, bad luck, but practices unfortunately lose their data just like that. And it shouldn't obviously uh, come to that ever. I mean, the EHR and your, your, your patient data is the lifeblood of your business. It's the lifeblood of your practice. It's your responsibility, not only legally and ethically and morally, but you know it, it, the patient expects their doctors to keep uh, everything necessary about their healthcare. And uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But uh, it concerns me when I see some practices that, uh, and I've seen some quite recently, even in the last few weeks, that when I when I've been on site. I said, show me your backup 
uh, process or your backup strategy. And uh, they point to like a backup, uh, either tape drive or something. And then I, I said, well, how many tapes do you need to back up your system? And they're scratching their head and they said, we never even replaced the tape. It turned out that they weren't even backing up the system. They thought they were backing up the system. They were barely even backing up their desktop. Uh, so some vendors are trying to market their products as cloud-based when they are not really cloud-based. Uh, what I mean by that is there are many systems that were not uh, truthfully built to be utilized on the AWS platform or the Microsoft Azure platform or the Google cloud uh, platform. And the true uh, proper way uh, for those vendors to really shift their software would be to either pivot the, the backbone of the software to those platforms, one of those platforms, or to even rewrite the software for those platforms. But in all reality, that's not what's going on. Um, there's hundreds of systems on the market and a big majority of them continue to market themselves as cloud-based uh, and cloud-friendly. And when I challenge them and ask what that means to them, they show me either they use remote desktop terminal services to access the, the system or they're using log me in, or even in some cases, there's some systems that have what's called a thin client uh, where a piece of software gets installed, but the database is online. So it's, I'm not saying it's important for you to take away from this that you should be cloud-based or shouldn't be cloud-based. What I'm trying to tell you is that you need to take away from this, that you need to know what you are. Uh, don't let a vendor convince you that you're cloud-based if you're really not cloud-based is what I'm saying. Because if you're not cloud-based and there is some you know, little uh, caveat of responsibility or minutia of responsibility you have in backing up that data, you need to be aware of it. And you need to make sure that you're prepared in case some sort of natural uh, disaster or unprepared or unforeseen circumstance happens. Any questions? I say this uh, and have to look at the question line. Let me bring up one thing there, Michael. Okay, go ahead, feel free. So I'm, I've got a client that was using a, a well-known EHR vendor out there the EHR vendor was hosting their product for them. So that's all the registration, scheduling, billing, and all the EHR data. And then one day when the physician was looking up the patient's chart, data was missing. So they basically contacted the vendor. They found out that 42,000 patient records were accidentally deleted. Uh, we never found out how they got deleted, but they got deleted. So we said, okay, let's just take your backup and restore everything. Well, the problem was that the software vendor only kept the backup for seven days. And after seven days, it was gone. And they didn't realize 42,000 charts were missing until over seven days old. So all of a sudden they lost 42,000 charts. Now the vendor did go back and was able to pull some old data back. But at the end, there was 20,000 patient charts and never got reloaded back in. Even though the vendor is contracted to protect, secure the data and back up the data. And the vendor still, challenge in the practice saying it's the practice's fault. How's the practice fault if you're contracted to provide all that? And all they're saying is we're sorry. And I got 20,000 pediatric patients where there's no records are available anymore. That's a problem. And the practice had no idea that this was going on. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a heartbreaking scenario that uh, unfortunately in this business you hear too often. Um, 
but it is important uh, for you as the physician or the practice manager or whatever leader role you have, uh, the fact that you're attending this webinar shows you have an interest in taking your, your practice and your business to the next level. It, it is very important to make sure that you understand where your group is. Um, before we continued, I was curious to just gauge from the audience what topics are most important. It seems that telehealth uh, has won. Uh, remote uh, patient monitoring came in second and value-based reimbursement third. So I think that's because they don't understand what the changes are coming from value-based. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I'm actually, uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Mark... Uh, talk about that uh, in about uh, five minutes. Let me just uh, talk for a minute about uh, a few key terms. Interoperability uh, is pretty self-explanatory. We know that it means that we need data to work uh, across the gamut, whether it means that I, as a primary care provider, have referred a patient to a cardiologist and need to share this extensive 45 years of living that this patient has uh, of coming into my office and diseases and whatnot, whatever they have, I want to share that with the click of a button to the cardiologist so that they get a full understanding of the patient situation. And they don't just get a, a, a five minute, you know, window look into the patient's life. Uh, we want them to really understand who our patient is so that they can, you know, assess accordingly. Um, so, Interoperability has many meanings. It means portability, data portability. Uh, a term I've heard uh, many times, uh, which I like is to democratize your patient's data. Um, to offer patient's data to be easily shared with other systems without losing its clinical discrete data status. Uh, you know, just to state the obvious, the word discrete here doesn't mean like, oh, social security number, we have to hide that. When we use the term discrete data in technical terms, when we talk about data, we're talking about uh, maintaining things like allergies in the allergy section in the system or medications in the medication table in the database. So what that, that's basically saying is interoperability shouldn't just relay a fax with a cover sheet that says, hi, this patient has this, this patient. We're talking about being able to seamlessly uh, send that data across different platforms, different systems without losing its status, whether it be medication data, allergy data, family history data, so on and so forth. I got a comment about this too. Go ahead. One of the challenges with interoperability is you've got a family practice that might have, you know, 20 years worth of information about a patient. I'm referring them over to an orthopedic doctor. Orthopedic doctor doesn't want all that information. They don't want interoperability. They just want to know what's the problem with the orthopedic issue today. Don't tell me their lab results. Don't tell me that they haven't had their mammogram done because if that data is transferred to the referring physician, that referring physician is now liable for all that information, all the clinical decision-making. And a lot of doctors don't want access to that. So even though we all talk about interoperability, the government's saying everybody has to be interoperable. You got to really look at it. Does the doctor really want all that information? I'm taking care of the torn meniscus in your right leg. That's what I worry about. I don't need to see your lab results for that. I don't need to see your cardiology things for that. 
I may care about what medications you're on, but I really don't care. But don't hold me responsible for all that clinical data when I'm only taking care of that one part of the, the referral, which is, you know, orthopedic-wise. Same with dermatology, cardiology. A lot of practices do not want to share that information, and a lot of practices don't want to receive that information. So how do we come interoperable when there's a disincentive to actually exchange data today? That's a great question. I'm assuming you don't have an answer to it. Well, again, part of it's the legal side. Yeah. Don't hold doctors responsible for things they're not responsible for. I get a lab result that shows their A1C is too high. Okay, that's more of a diabetic, that's an endocrinologist, but I'm the orthopedic doctor. You know, don't hold me responsible because their A1C is too high or that I have a conflict between two drugs that somebody else has ordered. You, you know, you got a patient who goes to seven different doctors, there can be conflicts between all those medications. But now that I'm the orthopedic doctor who gets all of that, don't hold me responsible for responding to all that data when I'm only taking care of the one issue. Well, that's a lot of medical legal, legal tease type thing you have to think about too. Well, we gotta get doctors willing to share data, but don't hold them responsible for all of that data as far as clinical care, especially when they're a specialist. Great. Um, let's talk for a minute about data migrations. Alex, do you want to uh, step in? Sure, let me just share my screen. Yeah, I'm going to speak briefly about the uh, process of converting uh, data uh, when the medical practice decides to move to a new AHR system. What are the issues that they normally would deal with in the process of bringing their data from the old EHR into the new one? And I outline three possible outcomes, uh, which you can see on the screen. The first outcome is the ideal situation where the entire set of medical records can be converted from the old into the new system. So under which conditions is it even possible? So first of all, it is possible when, when the data is uh, stored in the local office, usually on the uh, physician's uh, server inside their, uh, either their local computer or their network, where uh, it is accessible and we can get access to the, to the database, uh, assuming that we have a proper uh, credentials. Uh, once we get that access, we can pretty much access any type of data that is being stored, whether it's uh, demographics, uh, prescriptions, allergies, an entire set. That's the ideal situation allows uh, a, a, us, for example, uh, who are involved in medical data conversion process to extract the entire set. The other condition, it would be that the vendor is willing and able to provide uh, a full set of medical record in the uh, Excel format or a common delimited format where again, we can get access to it and transform it into the form that we can import into the new system practically everything that the physician would like to transfer into the new system. Okay, the second outcome is, is a partial uh, conversion uh, where some of the medical records could be converted, but not all of them. Typically it happens when the medical records are being stored externally, whether it's in the cloud or uh, somewhere in, in the, on the network, but outside of the office and cannot be accessed directly. 
so that's 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 a challenge. Uh, usually, getting access to the data. Uh, some of the EHR vendors do provide partial uh, extract. They they allow uh, the system to export some of the medical records, but not all of them, which could be then imported into the new system. And another possibility is to use HL7 extract uh, out of the current system, again, which is not a full set of medical records, but it's a partial. Uh, partial information can also be imported into the new system as well. Uh, and the last outcome, which is not a very good one, is that none of these, uh, none of the information can actually be imported out of the old system. Again, the typical situation is the uh, data is stored externally. Uh, for whatever reasons, EHR vendor is unwilling to provide any type of medical record exports. And also the HL7 uh, export is not available. Uh, and also there's a possibility that we can get access to the database, but it's totally encrypted. So therefore without the uh, encryption key, knowing the encryption key, it would be impossible to extract any type of data out of the database. And so therefore the only solution is to have two systems going at the same time, to leave the old, you know, old records in the old system and then start fresh with the new patients. And if there is a need to refer back to the, uh, some medical records, unfortunately the two systems need to be kept uh, going at the same time. And that's the only, the only practical solution to, to that situation when none of the records can be exported from the old into the new system. So basically that's, uh, that, that these are three possible outcomes that uh, any practice would need to look into before deciding to move into a new HR system. Michael. Great, thank you. Uh, again, I think there's some challenges there <laughs> because again, most of the vendors will you know, sell you a new EHR Remember, 98% of all doctors already have a you know, practice management, revenue cycle, and EHR product already. But there's a number of doctors that are looking at replacing their product, go to something new because they don't like the old product or the product's no longer supported, or that they're being merged together. I've done about 50 mergers and acquisitions over the last three years where multiple practices come together on different EHRs. We want to put everything on one EHR. We don't want to have three or four systems running if we can help it. But again, the challenge is getting the vendor who can actually do the data conversions and most of the time, the independent EHR vendors cannot do it. They need a th third party outside firm to do the conversion for them. Partly because one EHR vendor doesn't want the other EHR vendor to have access to their database. So you get a third party company that can come in and do that, it makes it a lot cleaner. Plus as of 2014, all of the products that met the, uh, the certification requirements have to have the ability to export CCD, CDA data, which is an interoperability standard for clinical data. It's part of the HL7 knowledge base. But now I can port over allergies, medications, vital signs, lab results, uh, some of their history and physical information. What they classify as 32 different data elements that are very common as discrete reportable data that practices would need. That can all be done now with a single click. But that just brings the data out. You still gotta bring that data into the new system. And you need a third party company like Alex's to really do that effectively. Don't rely on your EHR vendor to do it because both EHR vendors don't have an incentive to share the data. But you got a third party company like Alex, they can do it much easier and much faster and a lot cheaper to do it. Excellent. 
Um, let me check to see if there's any questions on the webinar. Before we move into the next topic, uh, which is going to be telehealth, I'm thinking maybe it's a good opportunity, uh, Mark, for you to talk a little bit about value-based care. That sounds good. I'll share my screen here then. Yes, can you see it? Yep. I just want to check on that kind of stuff. So one of the questions of being is, you know, what happens once we get away from, you know, COVID? How do you stay competitive, remain relevant, especially after things move on in 2021 and 2022 going forward? So we know the issues with, with COVID that occurred in. A lot of hospitals are basically facing bankruptcy out there. 120,000 physician offices closed their offices because of COVID. Now we're starting to come back again. There's a lot of fear up from the patient side. Do they really want to come back? I want to stay connected at home. More and more physicians are being employed by hospitals. And it's with all of this, this all ties into what's called value-based reimbursement. Basically paying providers based on outcomes and clinical quality that shows that we're improving the health of the population and getting away from fee for service. We basically just pay for what you did. Let's start paying doctors for being getting patients healthier as they go. So what ends up happening under all this kind of stuff is we have to find better ways of doing things. Uh, for practices dealing with the MIPS and MACA reporting, you know, that, how much does that really benefit you? But as we move to this prepared for value-based reimbursement, it's all about learning about the, the total 360 view of the patient, bringing all that data together, creating care plans around that, and trying to keep the patient out of the emergency room in the hospital. Sorry, hospitals. Again, I worked with the hospitals for 30 years. We're trying to keep, the, keep people out of those hospitals. That's where a lot of the cost is. And it really only deals with people with chronic conditions. The 30% of the population that generates 70% of the cost, that's what we're trying to do. How do we get them to reduce that cost down and keep them healthier as we go forward? And that's the big push for uh, chronic care management, remote patient monitoring. Think about that. How many minutes a day or a year does a patient spend in a healthcare organization, either a physician office or a hospital ER? versus how much time they're at home. If you're tracking a diabetic patient, you need to know what their blood sugar is almost every five minutes so you can make proactive changes to the insulin levels. I can't do that by waiting for them to show up in the emergency room when they had an event. I gotta start do doing that today to understand how do I keep that person from having clinical costs. And under value-based reimbursement, they're gonna be paying a healthcare organization X amount of money, like $800 per month per patient for somebody that has chronic diseases. And then you got to figure out how you're going to manage that $800. So it's a big change. And those are the priorities we're going to be thinking about going in 21. And as we said, that person who did the survey, no one thought value-based reimbursement was going to be a big issue. It hasn't been. Uh, the regulations came out in 2018. But we're only running about 4 to 5% of reimbursements based on quality today. But that's going to be changing. We're looking at 50% of all payments going to be based around quality in the near future. So you got to get prepared for it. So let's, I'm gonna jump ahead to this value-based thing because I have some other questions on there too about what doctors think. So basically it's accountable care for patients with chronic diseases. We started with Medicare, now you've got Aetna, Cigna, United the Blues, all looking at the same programs. The big difference is we know patients that are being monitored proactively, we are able to, when they have chronic diseases, we're able to reduce their overall cost by 38% if we have an incentive to keep that person healthy. Right now, the sicker you are, the more money we, we make in the practices. 
I want you to come to the doctor. I want you to be sick. That's got to change. That's what they do in the Scandinavian countries. And that's why our cost per population is so much higher than anybody else, because we're basically incentivized for people to be sick. The sicker you are, the more hospitalizations we have. The sicker you are, the more physician office visits, ER visits we have. We've got to change that and move to a whole new model. So what do you really need for all this? You really need a single clinical and financial database. You need something on all that patient, no matter where the patient goes in the community. Average diabetic patient goes to six different doctors. I need to have that all in one place. And it's not necessarily the hospital because the average person has 32 office visits for every one hospitalization. That's national average. We need to get that physician information all together. As I mentioned, we need to get all the information from the home rolled into together. So we actually have a population health management program with patient engagement software, best practices, clinical alerts, and more importantly, care knowledge systems that tell us what we really need to do to keep that person healthier based on risk scores. Your social, economic, and behavioral risk scores drive a lot of costs in healthcare. We need to know what those scores are and basically plan to provide better clinical care around those risk scores too. The other part people get confused about on all this value base is that 10% of the value of all this information is in the hospital setting. 25% of the value is actually in the physician sharing data with the hospital. But 65% of all value of data is sharing data between the patient and all the providers. That's what's the important part about keeping somebody healthy. Once they're in the hospital, they're there for a, a episode of care, a short one. It's an auto accident or something happened or they got, you know, got COVID, they had to go to the hospital. But keeping somebody healthy over time, the value is in the patient sharing data with all the providers. That's what we need to really move towards as we're going to value base. But again, these kind of models have shown they can reduce cost. A healthcare plan will contract with a specific healthcare organization, typically a hospital with employed physicians or a large physician network. But if you're a single, say a three doctor practice out there in the community, the big healthcare plans are not gonna contract with you. They're gonna contract with a larger hospital chain or a larger physician group, like a clinical integrated network. And from there, they will contract with you to provide services based on who has the best overall outcomes. How do you provide and prove that your outcomes are better than the other doctors in the community? You wanna be selected on that, otherwise you can lose that revenue. And we're talking about 70% of the money spent is going to move towards one of these value-based contracts. You'll still have the 30% of the revenue, but that, that 70% of the population is basically healthy. But if you're seeing any chronic disease patients, you can lose your population. I've got one product practice right now, 60% of their patients were pulled out of the practice because that contract went to another hospital and they didn't have doctors in that same geographic area, but they got the contract and they're making the patients drive now 20 miles to go see a doctor. When the, the, their core doctor was already there in their community, cannot see the patients anymore because they're not on their panel. So you gotta be worried about that. Look into value-based reimbursement, think about it, find out what's going on in the community because it's gonna change your life in the near future. That's it, Michael. Thank you, Mark. Um, let's talk a little bit about telehealth. Let me share my screen again. Bear with me one second. Here we go. Okay. Uh, I don't think it's uh, 
even debatable at this point that uh, everybody here, I'm sure, knows what the term telehealth means uh, given the pandemic. Uh, but truth be told, even before coronavirus, uh, telehealth was getting and gaining some serious traction, uh, some serious traction in the uh, healthcare IT space. Uh, it's, the term telehealth has really existed for quite some time. It's been available in the market for over two decades now. Uh, it's typically uh, viewed as a concierge type of care. Uh, and until 2015 was generally not covered by private or uh, you know, government insurance uh, payers. Uh, that all changed in 2015. And the basis for the argument was, uh, you know, patients in rural states that weren't necessarily within proximity of their, their caregiver felt it was not fair that they weren't able to get the same care uh, that other patients on the same insurance plan might be getting. Uh, and if there's technology that exists that would allow that caregiver to be within proximity of that patient, then the insurance plan should cover it. And that basically turned into what ultimately became uh, the telehealth industry that we're seeing today. Obviously, it's, we're very thankful that we uh, had this when coronavirus came around because the right tools existed in the marketplace uh, for caregivers to be able to either quickly adopt them or some of them were already adopting them. And patients certainly uh, have uh, had the opportunity to build up some trust uh, in the technology and see that it works uh, in many cases. I know Mark has told me some situations it, it, it wasn't ideal because I'm not going to you know, tell you that it's the most ideal for any kind of visit. Uh, it certainly isn't the most ideal type of uh, you know, uh, care uh, for you know, new patient care and, and, and other uh, such uh, situations. But when you have... Um, you know, certain specialties like dermatology, for example, a lot of the, uh, you know, derm visits uh, that a dermatologist would see on a typical day may not require him to uh, have his whole office operation up and running and ultimately uh, bringing his staff closer to the COVID virus uh, and viral loads uh, when he could really see what he needs to see from his patients in follow-up telemedicine visits. Uh, that's really all I wanted to talk about in the telehealth space. If you have not yet implemented telemedicine in your group or in your, in your practice, I suggest giving it some thought because it's rapidly being adopted by, I don't want to say your competitors, but by your competitors. Uh, and uh, it's come to a point where virtually all leading EMR systems or EHR systems out there are coming with the telehealth capabilities built into the system. So they're kind of uh, packaging up the offering to make it easier for doctors to be able to give that care to their patients and at the same time, keep that clinical data uh, under the same roof and, and keep the records up to date. Um, anything to add, Mark? Yeah, I got a couple things to add there. Sure. So if you're in a rural area, it makes sense because patients can't come in. I've got a big telemedicine system we set up 10 years ago in Alaska. Some of these patients are 400 miles away from the clearest, nearest doctor. It makes sense. 
But if you're in an urban area, you're in Houston, Dallas, Chicago, Atlanta, whatever. One of the challenges is we were getting paid $30 a visit back in the time. Again, these are in urban areas. It went back up to $120 per visit under COVID, but it's going to drive back down to $30 a visit. So you have to go back and look at what is your reimbursement going to be if you're in an urban area versus a rural area. It's going to be a big difference. Also, we found that elderly people do not like televisits. They'll do it once or twice. But I've got an endocrinologist, basically diabetic patient, uh, physician, and his volume went from 30 patients a day, dropped down to 20 patients a day under medicine, telemedicine. Now he's down to five a day. The patients are saying, I, don't, I want to come in and see a doctor. I don't want to do these televisits. One of the problems is with the televisit, telemedicine, I think it's good for healthy people who just want to get a checkup. If you got somebody that's got a chronic disease, we are not doing vital signs. And right now we ask the patient to do their own vital sign. You can't really rely on that. We're not getting lab tests done. We're not basically doing a physical exam. So I've got 13 malpractice cases I'm working on now as an expert witness where the diagnosis of the patient was missed because we're not really collecting all the right information we need. We can't listen to their heart. We can't look into their eyes or their ears or their throat. We're missing things. So if you're getting involved in telemedicine, make sure it's, it, that visit is re reliable and worthwhile type thing for the patient and for you. Don't think that all your visits can be that way. A lot of doctors are thinking that. But again, if you miss one diagnosis and that patient has an issue, there's gonna be a lawsuit. There's plenty of attorneys looking for doctors who are using telemedicine today. If you do it right, it's a great way of doing it. Your costs are a lot less. Patients, a lot of the patients do prefer it. The millennials definitely like it. And all my daughters that are all under 30, they love going to telemedicine visits because they can do it from their house. They can do it from the office. They don't have to leave. But for elderly people, you know, they want to, they want that interaction with the doctor. They want to talk to the doctor. They want to see the doctor, even if they have to wait an hour. Now that COVID's kind of slowing down, like in Texas now, everything is 100% open again. People are going to start going out. They're not going to want it. So telemedicine is good for certain populations, certain type of visits, especially if in a rural area, because rural area, you're going to get full 100% uh, payment. But in an urban area, bigger cities, um, you know, payment may be going down. So watch out for that. But it's a good thing to look into. You need to check into it, especially in a rural area or that you have populations or younger populations that are willing to do it. So look into it for sure. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm actually going to wrap up with the last uh, buzzword that uh, you probably hear a lot of, and that word is disruption or disruptors. Um, Mark, how, how do you describe the word disruption? Well, it, it sounds like a bad word almost, disrupting everything. But really, it's, it's, a, it's new technology that helps us change things. We've installed a new technology in our medical office. We've cut down physician documentation by 63% by having a new technology and that captures the information through an AI tool that the patient uses on their phone. I've got another disruptive product we're putting in that does um, scans of a diabetic patient's foot and we get infrared view of the heat of their foot and the coldness of the foot. We've been able to reduce diabetic amputations by 58% by having a different technology. It's like looking outside of the box, looking for new things, they're gonna change things dramatically. Uh, a couple of systems that are out there that allow, the, when, the, when you're on a televisit, it actually captures what the patient says and what the doctor says verbally, creates it to text and stores all that information in the EHR. So the doctor can talk to the patient and not type anything down. It all goes into the EHR as discrete reportable data by taking the voice and converting it to text. 
and following a almost like a, a Broadway play. Mrs. Jones said this, Dr. Smith said this, goes back and forth, gives you some great opportunities. But think of things that are forward looking approach, newer technologies, they're gonna make a big difference in your practice. Exactly, uh, I think uh, that's spot on. Um, you know, most people, either your generation or my generation typically uh, equate the word disruption as a bad thing. But just like you said, we're at a point where we need disruption in healthcare. Um, it's, it's weird and awkward to say it, but you know, the HIPAA laws, right? When were they uh, brought into play? I, 1999. Oh, was it? Eight, uh, 89, oh, 89? I think it was 89. 89, 89, yes, I'm sorry, 89, yeah. I th yeah, and, and um, you know, things like the CPT ICD-9 code rules where, you know, it determines what level of care you build for your documentation. Those guidelines were put into play in 1997. I believe they're updating them this year. But the point is, is healthcare has not traditionally been a industry that's looked to disruption uh, in the past. And that's why it's such a new word in this industry because the very future of care, uh, like Mark said earlier, is value-based care. And it's going to be predicated on a doctor's ability to show you know, clearly that their chronic patients are getting better care under mm -hmm. them. And that's, it, and it's gonna require data to show the patient's data, how it's going in the right direction. Uh, so disruption, um, I don't know who made it big in this industry, the term I thought at one point it was Jonathan Bush because, you know, he, he loved the, he used to love mm -hmm. the uh, former CEO of Athena Health, good, you know, uh, great uh, visionary. But in any event, uh, you know, when you go to HIMSS or any other conference, uh, you notice it's one of the top three buzzwords. Uh, all the companies there are looking for creative ways to change the uh, traditional approach to medicine, not in a bad way, but in a good way. Just like Mark said, uh, by using new technologies, new equipment, new devices to uh, pinpoint, you know, uh, more uh, you know, at-risk patients that you typically wouldn't have been able to pinpoint uh, had that technology not existed. And we all know this is where everything's headed with the rise of artificial intelligence, with the rise of uh, smart machines. Um, and it's important to keep an eye out, uh, you know, and be part of those disruptive conversations. Uh, you know, think about uh, one of the big dis disruptive areas we've had. 1985, Medicare came out and said, you have to start billing electronically. Everybody had to go out and buy a computer system that did registration, scheduling, and billing because of that. That's right. Then in the 2000 timeframe, really around 2009, 2010, when the EHR incentives came out, everybody had to go buy an EHR product. You know, now were both of those making it easier for the doctor's office? Probably not. But these were disruptors that somebody brought in and required. In this case, the government said you got to build electronically and you got to use an EHR. But now we need new disruptors that really save time for the doctors, make it easier for the doctors. Doctors are getting burned out. 63% of all doctors don't want to practice medicine anymore because they're getting burned out because of all the administrative costs, administrative burdens they have. We got to find ways to helping doctors out helping get paid better for the services that they're providing, help them save time. The overall overhead cost for a doctor's office has gone up 40% since 2009 with all the new regulations that are out there. 
you know, they're not getting paid more money and the insurance companies are paying less each month. How do we disrupt the system so the doctors are happy, patients get better care? Remember, we're rated 19th in quality care in the World Health Organization. Honduras has better quality care than we do in the United States, which no one really believes. But that's reality. We don't have health care. We have a medical system. We treat you when you're sick. We don't help you stay healthy because we make money off of sick people. We've got to change that. We need disruptors to help us move to that model. Well said. Very well said. Um, we, we have all the right minds uh, and we have all the right tools to, to make it happen. So uh, everybody should uh, look in, inside themselves for some inspiration to really contribute to the conversation that continues. Uh, last chance for any questions. Uh, if there's no other questions, I want to thank everybody for attending. Uh, and uh, this recording is going to be available in our resource library as well as on social media. So you can feel free to share it with anybody uh, you please. I want to thank uh, my guests, uh, Mark Anderson of the AC Group and Alex Plotkin uh, for uh, attending. And uh, I encourage anybody to please visit our website. You guys want to put your websites on here in case uh, you want to give yourself a plug or, or, or do you want to share your phone number or contact info? It's up to you. How do we do that? Just do we... the chat. Uh, I got to find the chat button here. There it is. Great. I was wanting to type better. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. So that's my uh, phone number and my email address if anyone wants to get in contact with me. And I'm officially retired, so I have a lot of free time to talk to people. And I do a lot of you know, just talking to people all the time. I'm a mentor for about 30 different people out there, helping them figure out what's happening in this healthcare field after 48 years of being in this. Uh, one, one other takeaway that I would suggest if, if you're uh, either a practice manager or a physician of the independent practicing group uh, is to consider uh, contacting myself and I can arrange for Mark and Alex and anyone else that needs to be involved to do an internal audit uh, of your backup process to make sure that you have reliable backups. And I don't mean one backup. I mean uh, enough uh you know, points uh, that you can restore to beyond just seven days in the past. Uh, there's a very specific uh, process by which no matter what system you have that you need to follow ground rules that you need to make sure that you keep physical copies of your data in safe places, whether it be maybe a copy in a safety deposit box. You know, we'll get into that separately, but uh, you can reach uh, myself at emrconsultants.com or 1-866-888-7448. Coincidentally, my cell phone number is also 201-888-7448. So oh, that's nice. <laughs> all right. Thank you all for attending. And uh, hopefully we'll see you at HIMSS 21 in August. In Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. Where it'll be 115 degrees probably in the shade. Yeah, in the shade. <laughs> All right, take care, everyone. Thanks a lot. All right, bye-bye.